Thank you, Josh and Kristen and Brian. So, if you could do something else with your life that you know you'd be really good at, like have another job that you'd be really good at, but for whatever reason, that's just not the job you ended up in, what would that, what would that be for you? For me, it would be a cult leader. I would be... <laughs> That's not the answer you were expecting, but it is the honest one. I would crush it as a cult leader. I have watched all the documentaries. I listened to all the podcasts, Wild Wild Country, Nexium, Branch Davidian, the weird Mormons out in West Texas. Like, I can't, I can't get enough. I have a problem. I'm, like, obsessed with learning about this stuff. I find it fascinating. I find it disturbing. Um, and it just occupies so much of my, my brain space, probably because of what I do for a living. It's like this weird Freud would have to say about this, I'm sure, but like, that's what I know. I would absolutely crush it at, was being a cult leader. Weird place to start a sermon, I know. You're thinking like, wait a second, is this actually a cult? And like, no, it's not, which is what the cult leader would say, right? Um, there's some people rethinking a lot of life choices that led them to this moment. Um, no, so uh, cults, though, are this, this not very rare phenomenon. I mean, they, they, they happen fairly frequently in the, in throughout human history when this upstart religious sect adopts an extraordinarily kind of anti-world, anti-culture kind of stance. And it leads them out into typically the boonies um, where they will not be observed, they don't have to interact with the general population, and they just kind of get to do their awful thing, right? Um, and it, it makes me think about the letter to Titus, actually, um, because it's a letter addressing what a new upstart religious sect is going to do as it engages with and interacts with a surrounding world and culture that it doesn't always see eye to eye with. Right? And, and, it, and it seems to present there's some kind of options that we can go with. And if we're not careful, you know, church can end up looking and feeling a lot more like a cult where it's like, well, we do our thing in here and nothing out there really matters. In fact, we want nothing to do with it because this is just about us. Um, and that's not really the vision for church that Titus offers. In fact, it's, it's quite the opposite. And so we're going to continue in this series on little letters. Um, which is uh, some of those short epistles or letters that come towards the end of the New Testament. Um, you can read any of them in like one sitting. Titus is like three chapters long. You could read it in 10 minutes. And if you did, if you just sat down and read Titus, I imagine it'd be a difficult letter to read because there's a lot of stuff in there that when we look at it through a 21st century set of eyes, we go, wow, really? Uh, I don't know about that. But when we take it within the context of how it was written, when it was written, and who it was written to, a lot of it opens up and allows us to, to hold a lot more truth that is relevant and applicable for us today. Um, the reason why context is important, we'll start with just like the letter itself. It starts with, from Paul, right? And let's pause there. Two words in, we're already stopping. Sorry, guys. Um, so Paul didn't write this. I don't want to like burst anybody's bubble today, but not every letter in the New Testament that says from Paul was literally written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, the, the church planter and leader that lived in that early generation of the Christian movement. 
Um, for the last like 150 years, scholars are pretty well certain that this, along with two other letters, First and Second Timothy, known as the pastorals together, were not actually written by Paul's hand. Now, at first, when you learn something like this, it can kind of like, wait a second, wait, the Bible's lying to me? That's weird. Um, and and that, that'd be one way to take it for sure. But, but when you understand that, number one, that's not an uncommon thing for people to do in these days, that after a great leader has passed, that their students and the people that sort of follow their movement will, will write pieces from their voice, from their perspective, and, and even ascribe it to, you know, from Plato or from Socrates. This is from Paul. We can also look at things like, you know, the, the grammar and syntax doesn't match the way that he wrote before. It's like if someone said, hey, I just got an email from Pastor Scott. And it says, greetings, my fellow congregants, right? Like, that doesn't sound like him. That's weird. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, it, or we can also look at the theology and the kind of, like, theory of church that Paul, or that the author develops in here, and it's very different than who Paul was, and we'll talk about that in a moment as well. But I just want to start with sort of this, this understanding and idea that this letter itself comes from an author that we don't really know, is sent ostensibly to these new Christian communities in Crete, but already we should, we should be wondering, how can this not just apply to one people, but actually apply to uh, the larger movement of faith? And so, Starting in verse 5, the author begins to get into the meat of why they wrote this letter. It says, the reason I left you behind in Crete, this is the author speaking to Titus as Paul, the reason I left you behind in Crete was to organize whatever needs to be done and to appoint elders in each city as I told you. And then the author goes on to explain the, the sort of qualities of an elder and, and who that elder should be. Now, now, I said before, this letter is different than other Pauline epistles like Romans or Galatians or Corinthians in the way that it sort of envisions church. So to understand how this is different, you got to get, get in sort of the mindset of Paul. Paul was um, this guy who had been a part of this extremely legalistic, extremely institutional version of the Jewish faith that had led him down a really dark road of violence and hatred. And then he ends up converting or being called into this more messianic tradition, this, this new version of the Jewish tradition that was following after the Messiah known as Jesus Christ. And, it, and he became on fire for essentially church planting. He goes out and begins to go to all these cities uh, throughout the Roman Empire where he is helping to start and to bolster new Christian communities. And, you know, this is not a church that was planted yesterday, so maybe you have or have not ever been a part of a, of a church plant before, but I know church planters, and let me tell you, one thing they do not get out of bed for in the morning is to go to committee meetings. That's like not their favorite thing in the world at all. Paul is a church planter. Like, he does not care about, like, hierarchy and structure. Like, he wants people to get out there and share the message and to bring Jesus to the, to the good of the world. Why? Because Paul's pretty convinced, like everyone else was in his day, that Jesus was going to come back on Tuesday. Like, we don't have time for the trustees to approve this, right? Like, we got to get after it, people. And so when we read Paul's letters, there's not a lot about church structure. There's, there's not a ton about, like, hierarchy and bishops and cabinet meetings and committees and the, the task force on et cetera. No, he's like, we just need to get after the mission because this could all be over pretty soon. 
And so then when we read Titus and we see that there's this like very clear framework, and the same thing is true in both letters to Timothy, there's this very clear sort of structure and framework for like a leadership hierarchy within the church, and there are these elders and and presbyters, and, and there's a bishop, and there's deacons, and like all these roles are spelled out. Like that was not the mindset of that first generation of Christians at all. Now, I bring this up, why? Number one, because I think it's important for us to see that even in the context of Scripture itself, there is an evolution happening in the way that we understand how we live out our mission. There are some people who would read the book of Titus or the letter written to Titus and would take it at face value and say, this is how God wants our churches to run and our leaders to live and our households to operate. We love bringing that one up too in this very patriarchal top-down fashion and it's right there and that's how we're supposed to do it forever, which is ironic because just two letters earlier, there's like a totally different vision for church. And it's like Scripture is trying to tell us that with each new generation, there might be some ways of operating and behaving that would ask us to change how we accomplish the mission that stays the same, right? If the mission, as, as the author says in the beginning, is to say, I am trusted with preaching this message by the command of our Savior, that God is revealed through his message at the appropriate time through preaching. I want to bring this to every single person in the island of Crete. If this transformative gospel is the mission, the way that it gets accomplished is going to change over time. You know, there is nothing in Scripture about a staff parish relations committee. There's nothing in Scripture about trustees or finance or how we approve budgets. None of that is there. And so for us to take this letter and say, well, Titus also says that men should lord over their households and that women should be subservient and also that slaves should respect their masters. Well, we don't say that one as loudly anymore, do we? That was only 150 or so years ago that we were quoting that. When we take scripture, we rip it out of the Bible and we, we slap it on a wall as though it's a stone tablet and, note, and unchanging and that everything in here is normative for all times and all ways. We do a disservice to the message that scripture is trying to communicate. The reason these texts are canonized in the way that they are, I believe, was in part to show the story of God changing over time to show the way that we live into this mission changing over time. The Bible tells the story of an evolving church, and that's good news to me, because I don't want to be a part of the church that helped to accomplish the mission 100 years ago or even 10 years ago. I want to be a part of a church that is awake and alive and leaning into what's going to accomplish that mission today. Today. You know, we, we did this in a microcosm and we shifted from the old United Methodist Church structure of the three board model and we moved to a single board model and the bureaucracy nerds are loving this and everyone else is going to fall asleep, but stay with me for a second. We went from this model where we had to have three different teams and it took three months to accomplish darn near anything. And this is the way all Methodist churches have operated for all, all time. And, and, and we adopted what is becoming a newer model for, for a single board structure. We did that when? Right before this little thing called COVID hit, Right? Can you imagine trying to get three different teams to approve every decision during a global pandemic? That sounds awful to me. And so when it was like, hey, we need to get cameras in the sanctuary. Great, let's get those nine people on a Zoom call and approve it. Done, let's get cameras in the sanctuary. What color are the cameras gonna be? Don't worry about that, right? That's not why we're here. This church's ability to continue to rethink and reframe how we accomplish the mission that we know is what God has given us. That we're clear-eyed about. Everything else becomes a conversation. And that's exactly the kind of vision for church that I think Scripture offers for us. 
And so then the, the, the text continues on, and the author goes in hard on the people of Crete. There's one part that I especially appreciate uh, where he says, uh, someone who is one of their own prophets, talking about one of the old Jewish prophets, said, people from Crete are always liars, wild animals, and lazy gluttons. This statement is true. Like, wow, <laughs> wow, what a vision for the people you're trying to reach, right? Okay, so not normative for all time. Are we supposed to adopt the same kind of a stance to the people around us? Be like, you know what they say about Dallasites, right? They're all terrible. Now let's go reach them for Jesus, right? That's, that's not, I think, the message we're supposed to take. So in those days, it was pretty common to talk down on the people that weren't from your hometown. It's why Jesus, when he's first beginning public ministry, there's that guy in the crowd, it's one of my favorite scenes ever, who's like, hey, does anything good come from Nazareth, right? And they all start laughing because Jesus is from Nazareth. It'd be like if I stood here and said, you know, guys, I feel like we're called to go on mission to Philadelphia, and I get it, I get it. They're Eagles fans. They throw batteries at Santa. I know, they're terrible people, but that's what God's calling us to do. It's a similar vibe, just to a more hyperbolic level here. I don't think the point of this, however, is to say, yeah, we should really look at the world with hatred. You know, there's some really problematic ways in which Christian communities can adopt this very, like, anti-world in, like, the literal sense, like, we don't like the people around us, we don't like the world around us, when I don't think that's what scriptures like these are trying to communicate. Instead, I wonder if it's communicating that, yeah, we've heard stories about these people from Crete all the time, and yeah, there are parts of this culture that absolutely are not designed by God. I mean, if we look around at our own culture, there are absolutely aspects of our culture that are clearly not a part of the kingdom of God, whether we talk about corruption or greed or hypocrisy, or I mean, we could spend the rest of our time going down the laundry list, right? And yet... As the Gospel of John tells us, this is the world that God does deeply love and does not condemn to hellfire for eternity, but actually wants us to step into and to love like God does. And so even if you think that the Cretans are all liars and wild animals and, and, and lazy to the core, right, God says, great, so think that, but what, is, what am I asking you to do? How am I asking you to shift your mindset and your approach? Because I actually love that island, and you're willing to let it die, and I'm not. I think it makes us consider how we step into the world around us. You know, a church that decides that it hates the world is just going to sort of recluse and become nothing more than a cult, like I said before, and, and we're not going to have any impact. A, a church that steps into the world and doesn't have a clear-eyed vision or mission and can't differentiate itself at all from anything around it, well, that, that's a pretty lackluster impact that you're going to have. That's not a transformative presence if you're just merely a reflection of the world around you. But then a church that steps into the world with nothing but like vindictiveness and anger, that's just going to be a bully church. And I think we know what that looks and feels like in modern day America. And so then what would the answer be? How would Paul ask us to wrestle between the, the tradition of who we've known ourselves to be and the culture that does and does not always reflect our values, and then us, this thing in the middle that's meant to live into this mission, this transforming mission of God? Paul would say, Get yourself untethered just enough from that tradition and that bureaucracy to be creative. Make sure that you're not holding too tightly to be relevant, that you forget who you are in the first place, and most of all, allow that mission to drive who you are. If it's not serving the mission, it's not serving anybody. 
If you're doing tradition for tradition's sake, if we change the color on the walls and, and somebody says, well, I don't like that, and we say, why? Well, because it's been taupe for 50 years. Like, that's not a compelling vision for the church. The whole mantra of, we've, well, we've always done it this way, that, that's, that's not a compelling vision for the church. And then at the same time, why should we do it this way? Well, because, you know, this is what people like. Well, okay, let's talk about that. Let's talk about why people like that. Let's talk about if that's true to who we are at the end of the day. But ultimately, how are these things furthering the mission of God? I love an Ed Stetzer quote. He's a church leader kind of guru, um, and I'm not sure if he came up with this. If he didn't, you know, I even put maybe, I think, on the slide. Oh, Dylan took that out. I think I put Ed Stetzer maybe. But he says that the church does not have a mission, but rather the mission of God has a church. And I think when we really understand what he means by that to the core, then it helps us to have better conversations about not just who we are called to be, but how we are called to accomplish the mission. Because so much that we end up arguing about, at the very end of Titus, there's a throwaway line that I love. Paul slash the author says, um, avoid stupid controversies, genealogies, and fights about the law because they are useless and worthless, right? He at least got Paul's tone right. That's how the author nailed Paul. That does sound a lot like Paul. I think so often in church world, I can just speak for United Methodists right now in our larger denomination, we are so stuck in a rut on genealogies and stupid controversies and arguments over the law, and Paul's sitting there going, this is why I didn't want y'all to form a dadgum committee in the first place. Because the island of Crete is sitting there wondering, where are you? What is happening? Okay. So in terms of, uh, and so lastly, uh, the, the author moves into two key ways that um, our faith is meant to transform us and the community around us. So if we're stepping into the community and we want our faith to, to transform this world around us, it's interesting, the author actually does tell us it starts with us. The author says, but you should talk in a way that is consistent with sound teaching. Tell the older men, older men, you listen it up, to be sober, dignified, sensible, and healthy in respect to their faith, love, and patience. Likewise, tell the older women to be reverent in their behavior, teaching what is good rather than being gossips or addicted to heavy drinking. I mean, he's just no fun. <laughs> Has he met church people before? But listen to why he's saying this. That way they can mentor young women and they can mentor young men. Now, how he says to mentor them is a reflection of this day and time. But notice that he's addressing start at the start the patriarchs and matriarchs of the community. When, what we're entering into in this portion, if you go back and read Titus, and I encourage you to, um, it's, it's a part that we will commonly call the household codes, and it appears in different portions of the New Testament. And it's this very sort of prescriptive-sounding language about how houses should operate. And when you read this part of the Bible through 21st century eyes, you're going to go, wow, this sounds really harmful. This sounds like it could be rife for abuse because it's basically saying like, it sounds very patriarchal. Like there's the, the master of the house who's, a, uh, I mean, a guy, obviously. And then there is the wife and then there are the children and then there are servants and slaves and, and isn't this one happy family? And you, and you might read that and go, God, that does not sound like the kind of house that I would want to live in. And when we read it in its own context, however, we realize that what this author and others like it are trying to do is to share a vision out of a context that is patriarchal, that is hierarchical, that is very abusive, that is also 
a vision that is more egalitarian and more unified and ultimately horizontal in its service of Christ. Um, and so it starts with the patriarchs and matriarchs who normally would be expected to do nothing for anybody, but everyone else is serving them. And it says, actually, you've got the first job. And your job is to set an example and to invest in the younger generation. They're not here to serve you, quite the opposite. You are here to steward the community that you've been given and the wealth and resources and the, and the position you have so that they are set up for success. Are you considering their needs? This is a radical notion 2,000 years ago. And then it instructs the households to be, to be organized, yes, in a similar fashion as the culture around them, but to understand that rightly in a more horizontal structure so that you're not abusing using the people that are culturally underneath you, but rather you are trying to provide a space where everyone is cared for and ultimately understands themselves as being in service to God. It's not perfect for a 21st century social ethic, but when we see it as an evolution of the culture and times in which it was written, we can see that that trajectory continues on to this day. Why am I bringing this up? I think partly because the author is trying to show us that for us to want to transform the world around us, we have to allow that transformation to start here first. I think a lot of times churches, and this is where I'll just talk about us, churches that want to take seriously the work of justice and the work of social action and the work of transformation outside in the communities, sometimes that attention can be so emphasized outside beyond that we forget that that transforming work can, needs to start here first. And we forget that, that we need to understand that transforming power before we can pretend to have something good to offer somebody else. Because when they say, you know, why are you here? And we say, well, I'm here with my church. They say, wow, how's that been for you? And you're like, well, I, I, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't really do much for me. I think the author here is trying to say, how is your faith changing, transforming, uh, differentiating the life that you're living on a daily basis. How, it is, how is it changing the way that you treat your partner in your home? How is it changing the way that you treat your coworkers in the office? How is it changing the way that you treat the minimum wage employee at the grocery store? How is it changing the way that you show up to city council meetings or school board meetings? How is it changing the way that you live your daily life? Because if this is just something we do for one hour on Sunday mornings, like there are plenty of places that we can be a part of a social club, and that's not what this is supposed to be. But then he goes on. The author goes on, and, and, and I'm going to read this passage as we come close to our close. Close. I said close. This is like your five-minute warning. The author says, talk about these things. Encourage and correct with complete authority. Don't let anyone disrespect you. Remind everyone to submit to rulers and authorities. He's saying that because he doesn't want people in Crete to think, oh, here comes an insurrection group. These people are going to try to overthrow the local government. He's like, we're not, that's not who we are right now. Remind them to, uh, they should be obedient and ready to do every good thing. They shouldn't speak disrespectfully about anyone, but they should be peaceful, kind, and show complete courtesy toward everyone. He says, we were once foolish and disobedient and deceived, we were spending our lives in evil behavior and jealousy. But when God, our Savior's kindness and love appeared, God saved us because of God's mercy, not because of righteous things we had done. God did it through the washing of new birth and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, which God poured out upon us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, since we have been made righteous by His grace, by His grace we can inherit the hope for eternal life. This saying is reliable. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have come to believe in God might give careful attention to doing 
good. These things are good and useful for everyone. It's not that our being good earns the mercy and grace of God. That's what the author is saying. At one point in our lives, we lived a way that now we look back, uh, honestly, we cringe. You don't have to look back and think that you were despicable or disgusting or all of some of that unhelpful language that we frequently hear in Christendom. But you look back at an earlier phase of life and you think, you know what, I'm really glad that's not how I, who I am or how I live anymore. Um, and he's careful to say, by the way, that did not earn you grace and mercy from God. God's grace and mercy was there even before then. That's what allowed you to make this evolution and make this change. I hope we all feel like we're different people than we were 10 years ago. And then he says, yeah, even though that's unearned and unmerited and unconditional, it doesn't mean that we do nothing with it, right? There's something that has to come out of this pouring out of grace, this new birth, this Holy Spirit blessing, and that is doing good. And not just good for a few people, but doing good for everyone, everyone. This is the same guy that a moment ago was saying, like, honestly, Crete, one out of five stars, terrible place. But love everybody, do good that blesses everyone. And so not only is faith here to transform our individual lives, that can lead us into a really weird pietistic place where we just sort of sit in a room by ourselves and read our Bibles and say, oh, thank you, God, for making me so holy. But it's meant to lead us out into the world around us that God does deeply love and is asking us to love in the same manner so that we can experience and be a vehicle for the transforming love of God in the communities around us, not just for a few, but for everyone. And it leads me to think of a closing question today. And it's a question that I know we have good answers to here at this church, but it's a question that I think needs to stay at the heart of any church that seeks to do good. And the question is this, if this church did not exist, who would notice? If this church did not exist, who would notice? I didn't come up with this question. I, in fact, I'm not even sure who did it. Different versions of it have been asked different ways. And I know that we can answer this question, right? I think most churches can answer this question to a certain degree. We would notice, right? <laughs> I would hope you would notice. Um, <laughs> please notice. Um, I think our friends would notice. Would our neighbors notice? Would the single mom who is looking for community, not just for her children, but honestly for herself, would she notice? Would the older man who really wishes he could have retired 10 years ago but just simply can't and needs some place to rest, would he notice? Would the working poor in this community who don't have the time or energy to show up to a school board meeting or a city council meeting but need someone to advocate for their needs and their rights, would they notice? Would the schools down the road from our church, would they notice? And while the answer to many of those questions, I think, is yes and is becoming even a stronger yes, I think the challenge for a church like ours is to never reach that point of complacency where we say, you know what, enough people notice. We're doing pretty good. Um, because we are. And I think the challenge from God is to live out this mission in a way that that answer is ever-expanding. Because Titus doesn't call us to do good for a few or to do good for, for most of them but to do good for everyone. That doesn't happen overnight. It's not going to happen next week. Jesus is not coming back in my lifetime. This is long, arduous work, but it's good work. It's meaningful work. It's a lot more important than the color on the walls. 
It's why Christ started the church. It's why Paul was on fire to move throughout the Mediterranean. And I believe it's why this people was placed here together. And so may we accomplish the mission of God, not just yesterday and not just today, but truly tomorrow. May we do it in ways that we can't even imagine right now. And may we be a part of this ever-evolving story of love that God is writing to this world. May it ever be so. Amen.